I think he's saying, hear me. You are invited to the celebration after the long race called life and it will last for eternity and your name is written on that stone. Come join me. Amen. Well, it's great to be here with you. It's great to be worshiping with you, whether you joined us here in person or online. Man, we are here to make much of Jesus Christ. It is all about his name, his fame, his glory. Can't say that enough times. It is all about Jesus. And all of God's people said... Amen, man. Don't miss it. The church needs to be rallying together for the purpose of celebrating Christ. And in fact, we're going to see that big time in the passage we're looking at today. Hey, we're in a series here called Wake Up Call. It's the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. We're going to be walking through the whole book of Revelation. So hopefully you got your booklet at the back and uh, you've been walking through that with us. If you did not get one of the Revelation booklets, you can just go ahead and raise your hand. We have a couple of the ushers that would try to catch your eye. They'll get a book to you, all right? But man, make sure you're using that book and walking through it with us as we go after it. Wake up call. This is a call for the church to be on fire for Jesus Christ in a world that is falling apart. Sound familiar? This is a call for our church to be on fire no matter what, may God get all the glory. Wake up call. Man, we're rocking through this. We're learning as we go. There are seven churches that were getting letters. Back at the time of John, John was called to write specifically to seven churches that existed in that time, real churches in real places that had real problems. And he was talking with them, and we can learn from that. We can glean from that and take those principles forward to today. So that's what we're doing as we walk through it. Do me a favor, if you will, turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Revelation 2, starting in verse 12, as we get going after the third church here, the church of Pergamum, all right? So you can turn in your booklets there to the week that's on the church of Pergamum, and we'll get diving in here. Point number one, stand true to your faith in Jesus as you recognize that you live where Satan dwells. Stand true to your faith in Jesus as you recognize that you live where Satan dwells. Here we go. We'll start in verse 12. He says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. Okay, so we'll just hold right there. He starts out, And, the angel, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Now, we've talked about this each week as we've talked about the churches. If you remember back in the uh, end of chapter one, there's this statement that goes uh, that the Son of Man is standing amongst the seven lampstands. And that's Jesus Christ. And he ends up saying what the lampstands represent. He's like, those are the seven churches. And then I'm holding seven stars in my hand. Those are the seven angels or the seven messengers to those churches. And now he's rolling out the message to each of those seven churches, right? And so here we see the word angel. Again, that means messenger, uh, probably best understood as human messenger. It can be either divine from God to man, or it can be man 
to man, but it would make most sense that God is telling John to tell somebody, some other human being what he wants to be happening with the church, right? A little less uh, sense to John being told to tell an angel to do something. God can handle that, right? And so this is probably actually to a messenger, a human messenger, a pastor of the church in Pergamum, of a church in Pergamum. And so as we talk about the church in Pergamum, this is actually the third church that's being talked to. If you kind of look at the city uh, names, it actually is just kind of going up and around. He's going to just move clockwise around, kind of like a messenger that would travel a message, how he would take it one to the next city. And so he's tracking along that way, all right? Um, That said, let's just make sure we know a little about Pergamum. Pergamum is the capital of uh, the Roman-controlled area of Asia. So it had multiple capitals, sort of like the United States has a capital for each state. It sort of had a capital for each area, each province, if you will. And and so each of those areas had a capital. This one was the capital of of the Asian area, all right, Pergamum. And uh, so there was uh, definitely massively Roman-influenced all right, as the capital, it had all of that Roman influence that would come with it. It had the, the many gods kind of approach to life. It had the, the massive freedom in sin and going after sexuality and drunkenness and all of that that was just raging in the city. And then at the same time, trying to pursue the many Greek gods in all of it. And so that's some of what's pouring down into this capital city, this massive Roman city. And And uh, there was idol worship. There was a ton of collapse. There was a lot of challenge. There was false religions all over the place. Pergamum, it's almost like each of the cities so far just keeps getting worse as we move along, right? Have you noticed that? And so um, let's just do this. As a little reminder, let's just throw the map up. This was a map that we had up in the first week. So this just helps us to understand a little bit of where we're at. So Patmos, you can see that out in the water there circled. That's actually where John is in exile. He's been banished to that place because he took a stand for Jesus Christ. And so out there on the island, he was called to write to the seven churches in Asia. You can see those seven churches there along the way. Ephesus was the first one we talked about two weeks ago, and then Smyrna last week, and now Pergamum kind of up the way along the way on the map. So you can see where we're at. If you just kind of get your, under, your bearing straight, Greece over on the left, this is really kind of what is modern day Turkey, and that's the Mediterranean Sea right there. In fact, just a little bit over in down is where Israel is, all right? Most of you are looking at me like, dude, I don't know the Middle East at all. Like, I I don't know what's going on. So just so you know, that's the map a little bit, all right? And just so you know, if you look at a map on other things, this may not be called Pergamum, it may be called Pergamos, okay? And, And just so we're super clear, in the Greek, you can change the last couple of letters for a name, and it kind of tells you whether it's the, the subject of the sentence or the object and all that stuff. And so Pergamos would be the formal uh, name of it, but Pergamum is the way it's used throughout the scripture, so we'll call it Pergamum. We all good with that? Yeah, me too. Good. Let's go with that. All right. Pergamum. Uh, So that's where we're at. And uh, it's a massive Roman city. It's the third one up along the coast. And uh, he ends up saying this, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. This is Jesus Christ identifying himself. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Everybody say it's Jesus. 
right? He's the one who has this sharp two-edged sword. We know actually from Revelation uh, 20 and 19, we see Jesus ruling with truth. Revelation 19 says that he has the sword coming from his mouth. We actually see that in Revelation chapter one as well. And so we know this is the spoken word of Jesus Christ. This is the authoritative truth of Jesus Christ. He knows what is true. He knows what is right. He knows what is absolutely, solidly holy. And he declares that and he lives by that. He's like, to the one who knows that, truth and holiness. And it just rolls off his lips out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And this is what's coming off of Jesus' mouth, massive holiness and truth. That is who our king is, Jesus Christ, all right? Hebrews 4.12 talks about the word of God being sharper than any two-edged sword. And so what Jesus ends up revealing out is much of what we have recorded in our scripture, in the Bible, we will follow God's word. This is his double-edged sword being revealed out to us. We as a church will not move off of God's word. And all of God's people said, Jesus Christ, the one who speaks the double-edged sword of word, well, we trust him, we worship him, and we praise him. He says, Jesus continues, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Well, that doesn't sound like a nice place to live, right? And he's like, I just want you to know, I know how hard it is on you. Like one of the statements he makes to Pergamum, I understand what you're under. I know the load that you're bearing. I know how difficult this is for you. I know where you live. I know the amount of sin. I know the amount of selfishness. I know the amount of false religion. I know the amount of idolatry and sexuality and drunkenness. And I know. And I also know that it's Satan's throne. Now, you can say, well, this is either literal or metaphorical. I'll say it this way. We know that Satan loves to influence where there is already high influence. Where there's high leaderships, he loves to influence. This is a capital city of the Roman province of Asia. Of course, Satan is going to be taking over there and longing to grab a hold of leaders and twist their minds and get them to think in a way that is so anti-Christian, so against Christ, so against holiness, so against truth. And as he twists and as he twists the leaders thinking, getting them to begin to celebrate sin and go after sin, now they start influencing the whole area for it. So yeah, this is a throne of Satan. He is taking up shop and influencing down in to the community in a massive, massive way. And don't kid yourself, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. It's not about person-to-person struggle. We wrestle against principalities and powers and rulers in high, dark places. Man, Satan influences in this world. Now, get, don't, don't miss it. God has his hand on it. God knows exactly what's going on, and nothing happens without God saying, okay, I'm going to allow that, but none of this. His hedge of protection, God on it sovereignly. God has a plan. Everybody say, God has a plan. So never get so focused on Satan that you lose track of God's got it. And he's allowing certain things to take place. Satan having a high influence into some of the leadership and them now having a high influence into the community. And it is a deep sinfulness that is going on. He says, yet you, 
the church there in Pergamum, you hold fast my name. Like you are holding on with your worship. You are holding on in your celebration. You are making much of me in an area that doesn't want to do that. You are willing to say, I stand for Jesus Christ. No matter what, I hold fast. And he's basically saying, great job. Thank you for celebrating my name and worshiping even in the midst of a dark, dark world. And he says, and you did not deny my faith. While Satan pressed in, while Satan persecuted, while Satan stung and brought massive cancel culture of their own type, whatever was stirring up into their world, they stood against and they held firm. The church stood strong for Jesus Christ and would not deny the faith. They believed that Jesus was risen from the dead and they would not move off of it. They confessed him as Lord in charge and they were longing for his return. Christ is coming again. Do what you want. That's where I stand. This church was on fire for Christ and they were standing strong in the middle of a lot of oppression and they claimed in the middle of the tough times that Jesus was their king. And then he gives us a little bit of an understanding of how bad it got. He says, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells, just to make it clear again what's going on. So Satan rises up and there's this faithful witness, Antipas. We don't know anything about Antipas. It doesn't say anything in scripture about it. There are certain things that have been passed down through the centuries from the early church on. And uh, one of those statements is that Antipas was an early church leader. He was an overseer. He was in charge of running a piece of the church. He took a hard stand for Jesus Christ. And in fact, the story goes that uh, he would not bend. And because of it, they ended up burning him at the stake in a public forum to make the point that this will not be tolerated. What would not be tolerated? He refused to worship the emperor. Remember in Rome, they always said, you have to worship me as God, at least one of the many gods. Just, just, there's a lot of gods, but at least you're going to recognize me a little bit. And so once a year, you had to recognize him as God. You had to throw a little incense on a holy fire, and, and then you were fine. And they were like, no, we're not going to do it. And Antipas was like, look, I know you want me to recognize God. I do. His name is Jesus Christ. I recognize the God of the universe, and I will not move off of that. I will never declare this one as God. He's a created being, and I'm done. That was Antipas' stand, and it ended up costing him his life. And uh, it doesn't say in Scripture exactly how, but the, the statements made through the church over the centuries have been being burned at the stake alive in front of everybody. Man, can you imagine that moment, that knock on the door? where you are Antipas, Antipas's family, maybe friends, you're over at the house and all of a sudden you get the knock on the door. Antipas goes up and answers the door. There's Roman soldiers standing there. There's even maybe a witness or two behind him. It's like, that's the guy. That's the one who won't. And he looks at him and the Roman soldiers say, I understand that you won't worship the emperor as king. Is that true? He says, that's true turn around, you're coming with us. 
take him, shackle him, walk him along. There's the walk of shame in front of everybody else as he's being dragged along. There's whippings and beatings and trying to move him to just take a little bit of this incense and throw it on the fire and say, fine, he's God, fine. There's, there's gotta be some that were like, just say it, man, it doesn't matter, save your life. And he's like, I will not. Jesus Christ is king of the universe and I will not change my worship. And they end up taking him all the way to his death. Maybe that's fire in front of people, whatever it is, all the way to his death. It rocked the city. This is a key leader. Satan attacking the leadership of the church to see if he can weaken it, to see if he can get others to walk away from their faith. Sound familiar? Satan attacking in a way to try to weaken what the church can be doing as an impact. And Jesus Christ is saying, you did not even get rocked. As you saw one of your key leads go through it, you held on. You stayed fast to my name. You hung in there. You magnified my name and stood beside me with all you've got. And that's our calling. Are you ready to magnify Christ? no matter what. And that's our calling. And the wake-up call here from this church, I'll just say this, the word magnify, it's a little bit of a weird word because it has two very different meanings. Like one of the meanings is like to take a super small thing and like make it big enough that you can kind of see it, magnify, right? And so we look at like with a microscope or something. Like that's not the magnify we're talking about with God. God's not some super small being we're trying to make a little bigger. Everybody say, not that. Not that at all. The other word of magnify is to celebrate, to focus, to lift up all facets of this God and make sure that our attention is showing him as number one, to magnify him. That my distractions are set aside, you get everything. Man, that's huge. In fact, uh, John Piper said this in uh, something I was reading this week. He said, feel, think, and act in a way that celebrates God in all of his greatness. Feel, think, and act in a way that celebrates your God in all of his greatness. Magnify Jesus Christ no matter what is washing on your shore. And all of God's people said, so what's washing on your shore this week? What's pressing in with you? What distractions are taking place that are making it hard for you to take a stand for Jesus? And now is the time to be prepared as a believer to say, Lord Jesus, I stand for you. In fact, in two days, there's elections coming up. Make sure your vote stands for Jesus Christ. Make sense out of that. Reason through that. You stand with Jesus, you stand for Jesus. May he get all the glory. Ready? And all of God's people said. Enough said on that, man. May God truly get, we live in a democratic environment where we literally get a little bit of a say. Praise God for it and go after that. May God truly get all the praise. So simply put, are you ready to take your stand? Are you ready to magnify Jesus Christ? Point number two, set down any worthless idols and false teachings. Repent and follow your king. 
Set down any worthless idols and false teachings. Repent and follow your king. Now, he just got done saying, you have done phenomenally. You have been holding up my name. You have been standing with me. You are doing a great job, right? And then the next word he says, but, and so here we go again, right? And there's a number of these within the seven churches. There's only a couple that actually were just told positive things. And in fact, things were going pretty rough for them, right? But here, Pergamum, thanks for standing up. Nice job, but, and when we hear the word but, it's a good time for us to say, "Uh uh-oh. Everybody say it with me, right? He's like, but, here's what I have against you. Uh Uh-oh, a few things to learn. Here's what I have to be saying to you. Here's some things you need to know. He says, you have some there, everybody say some. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam and who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Like you hold the position of Balaam. Some, some hold this position. Not all, there's a few within the church. Well, what is this stumbling block? What is this position that Balaam took? Well, just so you know, this comes from Numbers chapters 22 to 25. You can write that down if you want to read it later. You can. It's a pretty easy story to read. Balaam, he's a prophet, but he's not an Israeli prophet. He's non-Israel prophet. Okay, so God sometimes talks with him and communicates to him and communicating to the unbelieving world, letting them know things that are going on. This is a non-Jewish prophet. And at moments, the Lord of the universe chose to reveal through him. And Balak is a king of one of the local areas there. And he knew that he was actually very, very influential, Balaam was. So he went to him and he said, Balaam, I'm about ready to go up against Israel. Do me a favor. You curse them. Just, just give me an advantage, man. Do some things. Do say something. Make it bad for them. Call out some of your connections. Just make it go south. That's what I need you to do. And Balaam was like, okay. And so he stands up to start to curse. And the God of the universe ends up making it clear. Uh-uh. Dude, you're not going to curse them. Do not say words against my people. And Balaam hears it, gets how severe God is talking, so he turns it around and begins to lavish on praise and blessing for them. Like, I got it. And he's blessing them. And he gets done, and he looks at the human king standing next to him, Balak, who is like, that is not a curse. Got pretty ticked. In fact, three times over that happened where Balaam ended up trying to give some kind of curse, but when he started, God made it clear, no. He ends up giving blessing after blessing after blessing. He's like, I cannot curse them. That will not happen. And Balak is like, you are not doing your job. They ended up having a little bit of a chat about it. And Balaam said, look, I cannot go after him, but I'll tell you this. There's a lot of women that they should be removing from their sight. God has commanded them of that, women from the other foreign countries and all their idols. But there's a lot of women there that if you just put them near, their attractiveness and their draw will start pulling them down. So just go do that. It's a passive form of doing something. 
Balak did that and it ended up causing massive problems for Israel. So in fact, the Balaam sin is bringing in a form of temptation, bringing in things that look good from the world that tend to draw you down. He's like, there are some within your church that are being drawn down by the things of the world. They're putting things too close to themselves and it's causing them to stumble. In a huge way, this is an easy way to trip them up. Balaam's way is often Satan's way. Just a little bit of temptation and let's see how they stumble. May we get all the laughter. That's the goal. And he's like, be careful, there is Balaam's way in the midst of it. I'll just say it this way. You see it again and again today. You see the world pressing in and wanting the world's values to be embraced by the church. Maybe it's the statement on truth. Maybe it's statements on sexuality. Maybe it's statements on homosexuality or gender or whatever. And the world starts pressing in and saying, it is time for you to see it, not through what the lens of God's saying, but through what we say. And the world presses and asks for the church to just take it inside a little bit, to just consider it some. And all of a sudden there's a softening and there's a weakening and then there's a collapsing. Be careful, the world pressing in and us taking on their value system, it's Balaam's Challenge. I just wrote it into three words. This is Balaam's challenge. Ready? It starts with tolerance. First, tolerance. Well, you got to understand, they don't even know, they don't understand the holy God of the universe and just tolerance. And so, you know, we start with that tone. Tolerance moves to celebration. But look how free we are. Look at how we can celebrate even the stuff that's wrong. Do you see how we, and all of a sudden, as a church, you start celebrating that you're allowing sin. Tolerance leads to celebration, leads to participation. And once you're celebrating it, then you collapse into it and it's taken you down. That's Balaam's challenge. Tolerance to celebration, to participation. Be careful, Satan is continuing to do it even today. Now it tells us exactly how they stumbled. It says, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, uh, and practice sexual immorality. So that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Man, the challenge here is that they were falling into idol worship. There were foods that were dedicated to these idols. There were celebrations that went on about them being gods, which they weren't. Everybody say not. And yet they were pretending like they were. And they were coming along in tolerance, celebration, and then even participation. All right, fine. We'll participate in celebrating them as little gods in some way. And, and it started to taint their worship and pull them away from Christ. And in fact, it even says, and to practice sexual immorality. There was so much temple prostitution that went on. And we talked about it in the prior two weeks. Remember, these churches are only tens of miles away from each other. There's a lot going on that's similar in each of them. And the Roman practices are all over the place. And the sexual sin was tearing them apart. And the idol worship was tearing them down. They were falling softly and gently into participation with the world 
looking as though they were just trying to be open-minded. Be careful. This is God's word, and it is a double-edged sword of truth. We will stand on God's word. And all of God's people said, Amen. amen, man. May we watch out for the knocking at the door that is trying to soften our stand with Jesus Christ. I just wrote this. Worship wisely. Worship wisely. We will either be drawn down by Satan and his throne, or we will be drawn up by Jesus and his throne. You will either be drawn down by Satan and his throne, or you will be drawn up by Jesus and his throne. Worship wisely. Choose well. Our job is to call the world to a saving faith in Christ, not have the world call us to less worship of him. May God get all the glory. And all of God's people said, he says, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, the Nicolaitans. And again, we have heard this word before. This was two weeks ago, and we don't know much about these guys. We do know that there seemed to be some celebration of sin, probably temple prostitution. There was some level of living out of sexuality and misconduct. There was a holiness collapse in the midst of it, and all of it just falling apart. There's a word that they use for this in missions. When you go get a, like a missions degree, they talk about it as syncretism where you take your faith and it blends with the, the world's culture right around there and the two come together and it's a whole new thing. Syncretism. Like be careful that we don't try to make us a blend of the world and Jesus. It is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. May he get all the glory. And all of God's people said, huge deal. So yeah, they even had problems with the Nicolaitans, just like the church at Ephesus. It says, therefore, repent. Repent, it means turn from your evil deeds. Be done with what's going on. Turn and walk away from it. No more of it. Done. Repent. I am not going to fall. I am not going to trip. I'm not going to let tolerance lead to celebration, lead to participation. Done. May God get all the glory. He says, if not... Have you ever heard one of those moments? Knock it off or else, right? He's like, if not, I will come to you soon and war against you with the sword of my mouth. And this is a huge, huge issue. That there is a massive threat down on the church and Jesus is like, please, it's time to walk away from that or I'm going to have to do something. This is kind of the ultimate parent moment of don't make me come in there. Right? That's what's going on. Jesus is getting clear with them. This must be dealt with. Take the stand, hold the stand. See those around you. There's sin in the camp, and it's time for it to be cleansed. You know, this reminded me so much. Uh, just a handful of years ago, John and I were able to go to Israel, and uh, just an awesome trip. We're hoping to be able to get something like that scheduled up again and be able to do something like that. And, but man, as we went to Israel, as we were standing there on the south side of the old city of Jerusalem, wall behind us of the great city, 
and the city of David out in front of us, which actually used to be where Israel would have lived way back in the Old Testament times. And you're looking out at that area. There's a little dip of a valley, and on the other side is all these homes. And it's actually this uh, place where there was a ton of sin that was going on. This massive, horrible, ugly sin. And the sin that was going on, well, it was King Solomon in his day when he had his 700 wives and 300 concubines. Everybody say that's a bad plan, (laughs) right? Every once in a while, it'd be nice if scripture just made it clear, right? Sometimes it just says he had 700 wives and and you're like, is that good? That is not good, right? Like, and so let's just make it clear that was a bad thing. Well, what does he do with them? They're not Jewish. So we had them live just outside of the city of David across that little dip and up the other side and they lived all along that hillside. A thousand wives and each of them having their own little place and each of them worshiping in their own way. And as they came out on the deck on a given day, they would be burning incense to some God. They would be living in some way. They would be displaying their body in some way. And it became this horrible hill of sin right across from them and ended up tearing the nation down. In fact, Israel under Solomon's lead ended up splitting into two nations, north and south. There was a massive sin covering. As you tolerate, it eventually moves to celebrate, which eventually moves to participate. And the idolatry that was allowed and tempered ended up bleeding into the nation and destroying them. Man, be careful how you live your life. Simple question. Are you tolerating too much? Are you even celebrating sin too much? What needs to stop? Jesus' battle cry, be done with it in turn, repent. No more. May God's holiness and righteousness be what leads me. May his word guide me. What needs to go in your life. And let's commit to it being gone today. And all of God's people said, amen. Point number three says, be a conqueror for Jesus and you will receive hidden manna and a new name before your king. Be a conqueror for Jesus and you will receive hidden manna and a new name before your king says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear. This is the same recipe in every single one of the letters. So this is the third time we've heard it. He who has an ear to hear. Like, everybody just say, that's me. And if you've got an ear to hear, that's you, right? So yes, this is a letter to the church at that time, but actually it went to all seven churches. They were seeing this whole book of Revelation. And so they were all seeing it, all challenged by all of what was being said. And now as we read of these churches, we can even take the principle forward to today and be challenged and take it. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He says, to the one who conquers... Everybody say, that's saved, right? Romans uh, 8, 39 says, we are all more than conquerors. There is nothing that can separate us from Jesus Christ. Do you get that? 
that in Jesus Christ, we have hope, we have promise, he will heal, he will grow. There are times where we may falter, but Christ will strengthen. I'm telling you for those that are saved, we actually are told in Ephesians 1 that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing an inheritance. More than conquerors. We are conquerors. Everybody say, we are conquerors. He said, for those who are conquerors, to the ones who conquer, I will give. And now he gets two blessings that he talks about. Jesus says, I will give. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give some of the hidden manna. This is the food that was satisfying them when they were in the wilderness. This was the miracle food from God each and every day given to Israel. And so it's a metaphor here of all that's being given in life and hope. I will give you of the hidden manna. Jesus actually ended up calling himself the bread of life. He said, there's the manna from heaven that's actually the physical stuff, and I'm the bread of life, the spiritual. I'm the one who brings life eternal. John chapter six, I am the bread of life. And he's like, just so you know, you get to taste of me and you get to taste of me forever. But get this, he's like, listen, you are being drawn. You are being drawn by this world into some ridiculous public parties. You're being drawn into where they're celebrating some idol and you're eating the meat and you love being at the celebration. You think that's a celebration? You should see the food I've got coming for you. You think that's a celebration? You should see the party we're going to unleash. Man, I'm telling you, we are going big and we are going eternal. Do not miss it. I am doing something massive and you get to taste of that. Celebrate forever. Me, the bread of life and the manna you get to have for all eternity. And all of God's people said, Man, a huge promise. And then he says, and I will give you a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And I will give you a white stone with a name written on it. And there's a couple different thoughts about what this means. Um, you know, there was like a jury system back then and they would vote and the white stone would mean you were voted innocent or at least not guilty. And the black stone would mean guilty. And it could mean that except there's no name written on those stones. There was another stone that was given out that when you ran a race and you won the race, they would actually take a white stone and they would write your name on it. And that white stone with your name on it was given to you and that was like your special invite to the party after the race for the winners. I think that's what this is. I think he's saying, hear me. You are invited to the celebration after the long race called life and it will last for eternity and your name is written on that stone. Come join me. We are gonna have a party that so pales what this world is doing. Satan is trying to do nothing but a lookalike. You hang on. I'm gonna blow your mind with the celebration we're gonna have and it's going to go on forever and ever and ever. You having a personal relationship with your God, a name given by him to you, a special name between you and him. May God get all the glory. He's like, hear me. This world is trying to sell relationship and celebration and party. It is nothing. I have it all. Stay with me. Hang in there. Don't let the world distract. We are running hard for glory. 
May God get all the praise. And all of God's people said, may we magnify Jesus Christ with all we've got. Let's pray. 